that's the design thinking. And that's kind of really thinking outside the box of here's the thing that already exists. And then we're going to go and test this against something that's completely new and, and drastically, dramatically different. And I think that's when we see the biggest wins or biggest losses. Maybe you get it wrong and, you know, the experiment totally blows up, but you're bettering your, your chances for a home run when you're at bat, when you're thinking like a designer. Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of fellow.app. Today, I'm very excited to introduce you to Zach Onisco, who is the CEO of Dribble. Now, if you are in technology or if you're a designer, you've certainly heard of Dribble. It's a community where designers share, grow, and get hired. I was very excited to get Zach on the show because I've been very interested in the culture at Dribble. They've built a very strong, healthy and profitable business without really the need for outside capital. And it was very interesting to get Zach's ideas and thoughts around how they've made that possible, but also they've been remote for a very long time as well. So really was curious to get his insights on what has worked for him uh, since the beginning of time and a little bit about his hiring strategy and how they favor hiring senior experts whenever they can. We also talk about a very interesting and novel concept called Tiger Metrics, which is an interesting take on a famous uh, form of metrics and the separation of emotion from design and also the concept of divergent thinking. All in all, super insightful episode that I think you will enjoy. And of course, if you find this episode helpful, would really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review. It really goes a long way in helping us promote the show. And with that said, and without further ado, here's Zach Onisco on episode 108 the Super Managers Podcast. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Very excited to dig in. You know, today you're the CEO at Dribble. You know, Dribble is a brand that, you know, anyone who's kind of in tech, even if they're not design oriented, I think will have heard of or come across. It's a very big brand. And, you know, obviously you've been in the leadership world for a long time. You were at companies like Hired and Branch Out and so on and so forth. And, and you've been an investor and, you know, lived the startup life in a few different companies. So lots of stuff that we're going to dig into. But one thing we like to do is start from the very beginning and ask you, if you remember when you first started managing and leading teams, what were some of the early mistakes that you would have made in those early days? You know, I think the one that comes up over and over again, even as I manage new managers, right, is this transition between IC and management. And this comes up over and over again, is just this idea of delegation. You know, and for an IC, you're so used to just getting the job done yourself. And as you start to build a team underneath you, you know, you really have to start to share your Legos and really trust that other people can get the job done for you. I think the moment people have is like, 
it always seems easier, faster, more efficient. I'm just get this thing done myself and then we'll, we'll move on to the next thing versus asking somebody for help. It's that old proverb, you know, you give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, you teach him to fish and, and uh, you feed him for a lifetime. That's the one I think that stands out is, and I went through this, I think everyone goes through this. You know, when I took over Dribble, even as CEO, I, I, I still go through this, right? Because I took over the company, we were just a team of eight and now we're like 110, 120 or something like that. So as I've hired, you know, great leaders and managers and great ICs to build out this team, I've had to remove myself from being the mo- the bottleneck on decision-making, on product development, on marketing, like all these things. And I just kind of trust the team, you know, to take this stuff off my plate. And that frees me up with time to think more strategically, think more big picture and focus on, you know, other the areas of the business and, you know, other functions of the role of CEO that, you know, I, I personally just enjoy spending more time on. That makes a lot of sense. Wow, you started when uh, I didn't know that you were there that early in the company's life. That's awesome. I joined in 2017. So my, my story actually uh, goes back to, uh, well, I started as a designer got 25 years ago and moved into product management and growth roles and, and kind of in different functions across boards and then finally into leadership roles. But I joined a young YC company in 2012 as chief growth officer. And that company was Creative Market. We sold that business to Autodesk a couple of years later. And then in 2017, I joined Dribble as CEO. And then to bring things full circle, we acquired Creative Market in 2020. So I've kind of been at this, you know, in this role for about a decade, even though, you know, my my roles have changed and the companies have changed uh, hands a bit. That's so cool that to buy back the company that you started and, and sold through another company. That's amazing. One question that I have is, I mean, you probably have this sort of a dilemma all the time, right? So... Yes, you're helping new managers kind of, you know, learn the ropes and figure out how to delegate and how to feel productive through their teams versus necessarily through their own doing. One question I have is how do you determine what you should delegate and what you shouldn't? And like when it makes sense to spin up the team or hire a person to help you with that, like how do you like think through that yourself when you think about how you're going to spend your time? So it's interesting. So I think there's a couple things. So one is like just in terms of our philosophy for how we grow teams. So we've been a bootstrapped company this whole time. Um, we've grown to some considerable scale uh, independently. And so we've really taken a one, a very high bar to hiring folks and also just a very slow approach. So that old adage of, of you know, hire slow, fire fast is something that we we try to stick to. And, you know, hiring is really, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's a common thread of you meet somebody at a party and you talk about your startup and it's like, well, how, how many employees are you? And that's always kind of a, a proxy for how much revenue you have because no one shares the revenue as a private company or, or whatever, or maybe you don't have any revenue. But, you know, for us, the number of employees we have is, is really due to a failure on our part to be able to solve the problem we need solved with the hands we have in C currently, right? So we really take this kind of critical approach to hiring. And then in terms of delegation and, and passing things off, like I said, when I took over Dribble, we were eight people. So we've taken this approach to expanding the team kind of very slowly and uh, methodically. 
the same thing with delegation, right? Like it's the roles we're adding are roles that we can no longer do ourselves or that we really want to bring in, you know, more seasoned expertise for a particular function. We know there's a team that needs to be built. And so that team needs to be led by, you know, a seasoned manager because we're fully remote. We have been for 13 years and because we're bootstrapped, we also tend to hire more senior people that we trust to kind of hit the ground running and really um, own their function. It's refreshing to hear the way you put it, which is, you know, hiring more people is because it's a failure to do the task or solve the problem with the current employees that we have on hand. And, you know, I agree. I mean, a lot of very, very, even companies with, you know, who sold for very large sums of money, they didn't necessarily have a lot of employees. I think it was Instagram had 12 employees or so and sold for a billion. And was it WhatsApp? Those are the famous ones, but the, that's the power of virality, but. Yeah. So I guess like on the topic of remote work, since you mentioned it, so you all have been remote from the very beginning. What is like the workplace culture like at Dribble? Like how, how would you define the way that you guys get work done in contrast to say like what you've seen at other companies that you've worked at? So I think the ironic thing is that when I took over the business, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, my, the wisdom was to go build out you know, a hip office space in Oakland, because we'll use that to attract talent. And, you know, we'll have ping pong tables and foosball, you know, and all that. And, you know, we resisted the urge because we had some great remote employees. And we we're having a, a pretty easy time hiring some amazing talent remotely. And so and this was like, you know, again, this is like 2017. And the company has already been around for eight years, and it's been remote this whole time. And so really leaned into that And I, you know, formally coming from you know, creative market, we had kind of a hybrid approach, but some of the most effective people in the team were the actual remote people. I had a year stint where I joined a company called Hired and we had, you know, a big office space with hundred employees in, in the same building with Uber and Square, open format. And you go in that office, like everyone's wearing like the Bose noise canceling headphones. And, you know, you just see people like, you know, in that environment, people struggle to get work done because people are shoulder tapping you and there's constant distraction and interruptions. And so the remote thing really, you know, I leaned into it because I believe we can be more effective. And I also saw companies like, you know, WordPress and Elastic and, and GitHub and, and folks like that successfully scale into like hundreds, not thousands of employees fully remote. So I knew it could be done, but I knew we had to take a very deliberate approach to connecting people as people, right? And I think that's always the struggle with remote is that we have Zoom, we have the bandwidth, we have the video conferencing technology, but there's still nothing that really like connects like human interaction. So historically, what we did kind of pre-pandemic is that we had a design conference and the design conference uh, revenue covered the, the T&E, the expenses to fly the whole team and put them up in hotels for a week. We do this laptops down thing. We hang out, we eat, drink, we take you know, duck boat tours, go and scavenger hunts, kind of just have fun as people. And then you kind of come back to the remote environment. It's more connected as individuals. We haven't done it in a while. Um, we want to get back to it as borders open up because we're split between US and Canada. I think the culture is something that we, you know, in terms of my role as CEO, like what I focus a lot of my time and energy on is like, right, the, the mission, the vision, the strategic direction for the business, capital allocation, you know, the finance side of things, but then it's like people and, and, you know, that's kind of two parts and one part is hiring. So I still interview 
everyone who's hired on the team personally. And then I also, you know, focus a lot on culture building remotely. And uh, we have somebody on staff who's dedicated to culture and we just do things that's non-work related to connect people, right? And so this month, for example, every week in May, we did a fitness challenge and there wasn't a race or anything. It was just like, just take photos of you outside of your office, outside of your home, on a trail, on a bike, on a skateboard, doing something, tra- show us your you know, exercise tracker. And then we get prizes at the end of the week to whoever did a, you know, ones like who exercised in the most scenic area, who did the most creative exercise, you know? So, and that just builds engagement inside Slack and, and inside of our, um, you know, kind of our working environment. We do other things like book clubs and we do these kind of virtual games together and it's totally optional, but, you know, those things do kind of, when you're connecting with other people outside of the actual work function, that's when you start to build connection and you start to build trust. And when that trust is there, people work more efficiently together and it's less political. It's less, you know, the feeling of stepping on toes or any of that kind of awkwardness. And it just makes for a better, you know, culture for lack of better words. So yeah, it's been a focus for us. It's, you know, since the very beginning, we've been very deliberate and just try and build, you know, a really great place to work here outside of like having great perks and great salaries and great, you know, all the things that you kind of need for a job, you're spending most of your waking hours with these people. How do you make that experience, you know, kind of more delightful? makes a lot of sense. When you do go back to it, how are you thinking about the in-person event? So it sounds like most people are in North America. Like, are you thinking about in terms of having everybody get together once a year or is it multiple times a year? Or or at least when you think about this, what is a frequency that allows you to have the team building? Like what kind of frequency allows for you to build really strong bonds that way? You know, I think just given the size of the team that we've built, the expenses associated have really started to climb, right? And so now it's, we're looking at like a quarter to a half a million dollar expense to bring some, you know, to have one of these week-long events. Now that there's value to this event, but I think we'll, we're probably looking at something more annually. I think because our team is now split like 50-50 US and Canada, like where we go becomes more agnostic. You know, we can we can travel to either country and go to a new country and go to Hawaii and go to Mexico. But I do think it's important. I do think it is something that we want to invest in. It's something that do see the immediate results from that trip together. And, and again, we try to make it less like, you know, a lot of companies do offsites and they bring in guest lecturers and they make it all about work. And we really try to make it not about work. We try to make it, we'll do a keynote. We'll talk about the strategic direction of the next, you know, second half of the year or whatever, but then really try to make it about fun and just connecting people during this trip. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, as you get to really know each other as people, as, as teams that really kind of shines through and leads to better collaboration, better working together One thing that I did want to ask you, because you were kind of talking about this, you know, before was you try and hire senior people as much as possible. I'm curious when, when you say senior people, how senior is senior? Like, does it depend on the role or like, how do you determine how senior you need someone to be for a function? When I say senior, I mean like functional expertise. And so these are people who can really, whether they're IC or whether they're managers or, or C-suite, right? We really need people who can hit the ground running. And and also we're still a startup, no matter what your role is, like being able to wear multiple hats, 
being open to it and also being open to rolling your sleeves up and getting your hands dirty from time to time when we don't have the somebody to manage, right? And that means managers actually, you know, kind of being player coaches. I think that's an important part too. So we have made mistakes in the past where we hire brand name people from brand name companies and they require brand, you know, brand name dollars associated with their salaries. And, and then they hit the ground and they really don't have that functional expertise anymore. And what they are is really kind of professional delegators, you know, kind of delegate managing down and then managing up. They're not providing very much strategic value. And so I think in those cases, we hired somebody almost too senior or at least too senior for a company our size. And so that's when, you know, I think it doesn't work out, but um, no, I mean, for the most part, we're really looking for, you know, proactive folks who can work remotely and work effectively and who are functional experts and, and can just own their craft and, and we can trust them to get the job done. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, do you find that when hiring more junior folks, this is a thing that comes up, right? So a lot of people, I mean, for the companies that went remote for the first time post pandemic, and they were, you know, forcibly remote, one of the things that was a common discussion point was that there are junior people suffered the most because they were the ones that maybe got the most benefit from being inside an office and it was easier to shadow other people and get up to speed. Would you agree with that? Or how do you think about that? No, a hundred percent. We've tried to hire junior. We've tried internship programs. If we had the luxury to have a staff large enough that we had training built out, if we had you know, support programs to be able to, you know, provide that ramp you need as a junior person and getting that on the job training. I think it makes sense. But for us, we just haven't had the luxury, right? Because we're bootstrapped, because we have to, you know, every person on the team has to be a contributor, you know, in their function. And I would love to get to a size one day where we can provide that, that training support, but we're just not a larger organization yet to be able to do that. Yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, you guys have been remote for 13 years, so it's validating to, to also hear you say that. I am curious about one more thing on, on remote culture. How do you think about your synchronous versus your asynchronous interactions? I know for some folks, for example, the folks at Doist, they have almost no meetings at all that are synchronous. I'm curious how you approach that and, and how you think about balancing the two. I think it all comes down to the way that people work and every company is different. And for us, we're, I would say we're at the size, at least, where we're time zone sensitive, right? And so that online presence is really important for how we work today. Now, that may change, right? At 200, 300 employees, maybe we do need to have, you know, there's the North American team, there's the Euro team, there's the APAC team. We're not even thinking that far ahead yet because we're very centralized in North America. Because of that, you know, kind of three-hour time zone gap gives us enough overlap between teams to no one gets blocked. We have hired people in Europe in the past, and it just didn't work out when, you know, somebody's roadblocked for 24 hours, you know, before that person comes online, the other person's asleep, the other person's awake up, they see the note. And so there is inefficiencies if you're working on two sides of the earth. Now, if there's a team on, in North America and there's a team in Europe, I can totally see how those can work well together. But I'm curious, the do list, I, I don't know how they do it, but it's fascinating. They could do it without, new, without meetings, but we, we like to collaborate. We like to um, work as a team. And so that 
that online presence is, is pretty important for how we work. You know, it's interesting. The way that people take this approach is, you know, I think that there are some things that most people agree with that things like status updates or, or things that don't require collaboration should definitely be taken in an asynchronous format. But, you know, if you're doing a one-on-one -on -one meeting, you know, with your direct reports, I mean, that I think most people agree that that should be synchronous and, and there's a lot of benefit from that. People need that. I think you can't skip that either. I don't think you can just throw it in whatever tool you have. Like you need that FaceTime with your manager Otherwise, you go from this, like, a fish, the efficiencies of remote, you start to have remote islands where people feel really detached from the core business, they feel detached from their management, they're not getting feedback, they're not getting the support they need to do good work. And so I think it is really critical, like, every person in our company has a one-on-one -on -one with their direct report every week. We also do um, all-hands calls weekly as well, and other, you know, other companies will do monthly, quarterly, kind of big keynotes, we kind of put those into bite-sized chunks and we like to share work in progress with the team, but like every functional team gets a chance to share, you know, kind of what they're working on. And that really connects everyone from sales to marketing, to product, to design, to, you know, to support. Everyone kind of knows where everyone's focused throughout the organization. Hey there, before moving to the next part of the interview, quick interjection to tell you about one of the internet's best kept secrets, the Manager TLDR newsletter. So every two weeks, we read the best content out there, the greatest articles, the advice, the case studies, whatever the latest and greatest is, we summarize it and we send it to your inbox. We know you don't have the time to read everything, but because we're doing the work, we'll summarize it and send it to your inbox once every two weeks. And the best news, it's completely free. So go on over to fellow.app newsletter and sign up today. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. I think that makes a lot of sense. I did want to dig into because, you know, Dribble the products is something that, you know, has worldwide reach, a lot of people use. And I think that we would all agree that in terms of design and building a really great product have uh, really done great things. So I'm curious if we dig into the way that you think about your product and how you build it. There's this framework that you've shared called the Rice Framework. I'd love for you to just dig in on that and tell us maybe how you put that to work and how it results in the way that you put Dribble the product together. I don't know if we, we use the frameworks so literally, the more of just a, a guide and, and to help us kind of frame what's important. You know, for a bootstrap company, for the one I like to go to a lot is Pirate Metrics, which is, you know, acquisition, activation, retention, referral, revenue, but actually reverse it and call it Tiger Metrics, where it's like RAR. <laughs> the acronym for Pirate Metrics is R, and this is like RAR. So anyway, because revenue is key, right? So, you know, that cash flow is critical to our success and sustainability. And so we really kind of take a revenue-first approach to prioritization. And we think both short and long-term, but through that kind of lens. Is the right model in place? Is there enough TAM? Is there, you know, because all these kind of things kind of, help us think through prioritization. That's kind of the, you know, the RICE framework is, what is it? Reach, impact, confidence, effort. And there's there's different ways people do it. They'll do like a spreadsheet. And it's like, you know, how many people will it take to build this feature? What do we think is going to be the, the desired impact? You know, there's different ways you can mark the columns and kind of sum up a score and it helps prioritize. We don't really go through that exercise very much these days because it's more kind of a, 
instinctual almost because you kind of see like we're not short of good ideas we have like years of stuff we can build and like so many good ideas and our community is also awesome and like shares so many awesome ideas that we should build and it really just comes down to like what do we prioritize and you know what's most important for the business we're building our mission for our users that's kind of where that came from yeah, that's very cool. I haven't heard the, you know, reverse the R metrics and make them tiger metrics. That That's pretty cool. And having a revenue first approach makes a lot of sense. My last company, Fellow is obviously venture backed, but my last company was bootstrapped. And so I can relate to a lot of the things that you're saying. And we also, you know, it was all, all about revenue. Sometimes it was too much about revenue. I will say like we made some bad decisions in my last company that I wouldn't repeat maybe, get a ton of traffic right and so it was like okay we have all this traffic very low revenue so how do we start focusing on revenue so we can you know do things like grow the team and invest in the product and you know build in invest in analytics stacks and like all, all the things that come with scaling up a business it takes cash flow and that's that's why the priority is there because we're bootstrapped we don't have kind of that venture backed pressure to grow by you know all means necessary. So, so we do have a very prudent approach to running the business. But anyway, I just wanted to interject there and share that part that, you know, we had this platform with all this crazy traffic and it was kind of like, what business model should we bring to the business to help, you know, monetize, right? That makes a lot of sense. At the end of the day, I mean, that is the purpose of a business, one of the primary purposes. And, and it makes sense to bring that into light and then get everybody as they're thinking about the product to really think, you know, how is this going to contribute? Uh, the other thing that you've talked about uh, along the lines of product uh, building is you've said that design is an emotional profession. You lead with your heart and you want to make these aesthetically beautiful designs for people, but sometimes those are not the most effective designs. So one question around this is, how do you get designers on your team to separate the emotion of design from their work? Or how do you think about those two things living together? I was a designer, right? And so coming up as a designer, you're designing for yourself a lot of ways. And there's this weird, like kind of when you're in kindergarten, you're drawing and everyone's an artist and everyone's creative, but design is really designing for an outcome and designing for a purpose. And I think a lot of young designers either lack the experience to know what works or they lack the strategic knowledge of the business. And I think, you know, at least in the last five years, you know, it's been great to see more just the design function as a whole become just more critical to, to business success, right? And I think that's because, you know, as technology flattens the competitive landscape, the way that companies differentiate and win customers and retain their customers is by building a better product and building a better user experience. And that is all situated in great design, right? And so, you know, the emotion of design is really important, right? And it, But I think it's like, it's really the psychology of design that is critical. And, you know, I was, I was talking to an engineer friend of mine and he's like, I don't know what good design is. Like, I, I can't design great design, but I know bad design when I see it. And I think that's, maybe that's where this quote was pulled. But I, don't, I don't remember uh where I said that quote, but I think that's really important, right? And I think that for me as a designer, I was, you know, I freelanced out of high school. I built a lot of mom and pop, you know, business websites. And then I went to design school. Then I came out of school and I took a job at a fast growing startup, spending like a million, two million bucks a month and in, in paid in the early 2000s. And we were kind of everywhere, MSN, like New York Times, like 
It's like, oh, wow, my work is getting out there in front of all these people. And the marketing team would come over and like slam an Excel spreadsheet on my desk. And like, stop doing these ones, do more of these ones, right? And I'm like, oh, what about these designs outperforming these other designs? You really start to think through beyond the aesthetics. I'm like, oh, that one's really beautiful. It's, you know, but maybe it's too busy and like the clarity of the call to action or the clarity of the headline didn't stand up or what have you. So that's important is that the design should have emotion. The design should like psychologically be, you know, it, it should feel good to use the product because that's part of good design, right? There's, I was talking to my wife about this, like what's, you know, about good design. And I'm like, well, there's, we have this table that's like handmade and crafted. Like imagine this compared to like a table from Ikea, you'll know which one is the better table because of the intuitive thought of how much work went into craft a thing and like how much care and how much passion and love when it's like making a thing and bringing it into this world. And I think that's important for design. If it's rushed, you can see like kind of a junior designer's work because they don't have the history or the experience to bring to their work to make it more polished and to make it more performant. I mean, that's very interesting. So when hiring designers, what are things that you've learned that makes a great hire? Is there something that specifically that you see in a portfolio or, you know, how do you know if someone's going to be a great hire for design? At this point, I'm not really the one in charge of screening designers or making the call to hire them. We have VP of design kind of makes all those calls, but no, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think experience, right? And I think this goes for all functions in our org. We don't have time to train. We don't have time to invest in experience. Unfortunately, it was just, it's just a luxury we don't have. And so really finding folks who, again, can hit the ground running, just know our business, know our challenges, know our customers and can, you know, kind of immediately kind of come into the fold and make an impact. Makes a lot of sense. There is another quote that we have from you, and you can tell me if you remember this one, but you said it's on divergent thinking, which is the great way that designers solve problems is we tend to think divergently. Great designers have the ability to think outside constraints of what's already there, scrap it, come up with something completely new. So I guess like when you think about this type of thinking, divergent versus convergent thinking, how does this line of thinking help you build a better business or how do you use it, you know, outside of just design, but using it in terms of, you know, figuring out where to take the company next? I stole that quote from the founder of IEO. So I, I remember saying this one. So, but uh, no, I have a story related to this one. At a former company, I ran a big growth marketing team and I had an outside agency hired to do conversion rate optimization. And every week they'd send me a report. And every week, our homepage conversion rate, we can continue to go up. And like, oh, these guys are doing a great job. Let's, you know, I kind of left them alone to continue to do what they're doing. And then one day the, the head of sales comes over and he's like, what are you doing to the homepage? Like my AEs have to get on a call with every new client and explain what the hell we do as a business, right? And, like, and then you go to the homepage and it's like, oh, well, of course they're getting increased conversion rate because they're just pulling all the marketing copy. They're pulling all the like, text. And so like by just making the thing more simple, they're driving more conversions through the funnel. That's an example of this taking things away versus thinking about the actual problem in a different light. And so the design thinking, and this also comes, maybe testing, we see this a lot also where, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks go like, 
let's just change the copy a little bit, or let's change the button color. And, you know, and what you see is this little slight increase, maybe if you're successful, but it's really not meaningful. And where we really see the big, like kind of statistical significant changes. And when you really try, let's try a completely different page, a completely different marketing thought process, a different value proposition framing, right? And when you do something that dramatic, and that's the design thinking, and that's kind of really thinking outside the box of here's the thing that already exists. And then we're going to go and test this against something that's completely new and, and drastically, dramatically different. And I think that's when we see the biggest wins or biggest losses. Maybe you get it wrong and you know the experiment totally blows up, but you're bettering your, your chances for a home run when you're at bat, when you're thinking like a designer and you're thinking through you know, really zooming out and looking at the big picture versus like, is this button cut, you know, should it be joined now or get started, right? Like maybe that makes a difference, but it, in the long run, it doesn't. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting and, and hearing that from you, especially because you, you know, just looking at your background, lots of growth roles. And so when I think about a lot of growth roles, at least maybe this is my biased perception that I think that it is very iterative and it is like move this button here or or make this small change. But it's very interesting to hear you say that actually a lot of the biggest innovations are from, you know, scrapping things and, and thinking maybe from first principle and and starting with something very different. My magic tool, my toolbox uh, over the years has been this, this background in design. And early on in my career, in the early 2000s, a lot of features and functionality was created in engineering. Back then, startups were very engineering-led, right? And design was really came in after the feature was, after the page was actually built. And they're like, hey, throw some good fonts and some graphics on this, make it pretty and we'll ship it. Right. And we're like, well, you know, and then as a designer, you're kind of like, well, did you think through like how a user would interact with this? And like, you know, what about what happens in this outlier condition? Did you really think through all the different, you know? And so that led me from a designer to moving into product management. So I can have more of a voice in those conversations. Cause it's like late nineties, early two thousands where, you know, it was just a different time and different culture, the way the products are built. And then, you know, from product management, it's like, oh, well, part of that job was A-B testing and and how you win as a, a leader of product is making that product succeed and become a better version of it. And so that kind of led me more into this, you know, nomenclature that's called growth or whatever it has, you know, it's a function that has many names, but it's really just like, how do you make a business perform? And that's led me in now a CEO role where I do it at a much higher lens of the business and thinking through all the functions kind of together as like an orchestrator uh, versus, you know, my hands and an optimizely or whatever. And when you think about the company on an overall basis, I'm curious if you have any stories of this concept of rather than doing something iteratively, really maybe scrapping things and trying a, you know, very sort of divergent approach, whether it's like org structure for the company, business model, or like something on the company level where you have an example of trying something very different and making the difference in that way? No, I mean, I think Dribble has been just one after another of pretty dramatic shifts in pivots and trying new things. And we've done some pretty big experiments and we've been lucky that a lot of them paid off and some of them have been failures and we had a sunset products and we made acquisitions. We had a sunset because they didn't work and, you know, but, um, by far and large, the biggest impacts we've had have been these big 
new ideas that we really kind of invest in to get a signal from our users to see if there's a product market fit, to see if we have something that we can invest in further and continue to build up and optimize. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the founders, you know, in the early team, there was this inherent fear of changing anything on Dribble because we were designing for designers, right? And there's quite a bit of, you have to develop some thick skin for that job. Once I had the thick skin in place, then it was, I felt more, more confident in trying some big ideas. And look, at the end of the day, it's a website. You could always change it. I think that's one of the beautiful things of designing for the internet is that it all is temporary and it changes, you know, dribble a year from now will look very different from dribble today. This is a really great way to encourage people to experiment and, and try new things and not be afraid of failing. Zach, this has been uh, really awesome. We've talked about uh, so many different things. We started with remote work and team building, product roadmaps, your thoughts on uh, design and divergent thinking. One question that we like to end with is for all the managers and leaders who are constantly looking to get better at their craft of managing and leading teams, are there any final tips, tricks, resources, or just parting words of wisdom that you'd like to leave them with? Hmm. I would say read and not just blog posts and tweets, but like read books and listen to Audible. If you can't sit down and read the actual physical book, go for walks and just listen to the wisdom of other managers and other leaders. And I think whenever I get stuck in a place, I go pick up a, a new book and just, even if I get into a couple chapters, it really starts to get you to think differently and kind of think about reframing you know, whatever challenge you're, you're focused in or, or if you're just in, in need of some inspiration, right? There's so many great leaders have shared their story and shared their, their adventure in detail, right? And so there's so much to pick up from that. That's great advice and a great place to end it. Zach, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, man. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app slash supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.